evidence and answers. Can one believe in science and the Genesis creation account? Can a Christian be serious about science and still believe in the Bible? Is Christianity incompatible with science? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each year, Pat hosts an apologetics conference located in beautiful Hawaii. And today we are listening to one of the teachings taken from the 2018 apologetics conference. Let's tune in as Greg Kokel dispels the popular myth that Christianity and science are at odds and reveals how they are actually allies. If you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, on to the conclusion of today's message entitled, Faith and Science, Are They Compatible? Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they were all cut to the quick, and thousands were added to the body. Do you see the point that I'm making? I've labored over this, given you lots of illustrations, and I give you lots and lots more to show you that the Bible knows nothing of blind faith. If atheists want to define faith that way, they're welcome to it, but they can't make that our definition. If they want to deal with our understanding, they have to deal with that and not distort it. They can't push their own boutique definition on it which they do all the time. So when it comes to the question of faith and science, are they compatible? Well, it depends on what you mean by faith. If what you mean is belief by blind faith, well, I can see there's going to be a problem. But that's not our view. Our view is about the way the evidence works. So when it comes to the Christian biblical understanding of faith, there is no necessary contradiction between the deliverances of science and the, the act of trust that Christians are asking others to take because they've taken it themselves, because that act is consistent with evidence for it. Okay? Second, and this is going to be very quick because this is just a simple one. I said... Whether or not there's a conflict between faith and science depends on what you mean by faith. We just covered that. It also depends on what faith you mean. That is, what faith tradition. If you're a Hindu, the way your worldview works, and Pat covered this a little bit yesterday, is that everything is God. Now, this requires a little bit more clarification. When they say that everything is God, what they mean is that that the only thing that exists is God. And everything else that looks like it exists doesn't exist. It is just an illusion. The illusion has a name. It's called Maya, M-A-Y-A. So what looks like a real world to us, which we inhabit and are part of, turns out not to be real at all. It is simply an illusion. The only thing that is real is God. And so when people think, well, everybody's God, you're God, I'm God, they think that this is ennobling. It's just the opposite. The only way that you're God is that you don't exist, and what you are, so to speak, is just part of God's imagination. Lila, his games that he plays in his mind. But he's an impersonal force, so that also is kind of mysterious. Now, can you see that if you are a Vedantic Hindu, and you believe that the world is just an illusion, 
how that kind of faith tradition would create a problem with science which functions by taking the world seriously. You see the problem there? The physical world seriously is what I mean. So, is there a conflict between faith and science? Well, if, if your faith tradition is Hindu, yeah. Vedantic Hinduism, if your belief is that God is in all only because God is all and all the rest doesn't even exist, that's a problem. Incidentally, it shouldn't be surprising then that science, as we understand it as a knowledge tradition, found its roots in Western civilization. How is that? Because they believed that there was a God who made a world that we could experience and know and use. That was the mandate that Pat was talking about yesterday in Genesis chapter 1. We can use for our benefit. We can learn about it, and in learning about it, can learn about the maker of that world, and then take what we've learned to subdue and to multiply and to flourish on the earth. It all fits into our worldview. Okay? Some people will say, well, intelligent design, getting God into the picture, that is a science stopper. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. The minute you get God in the picture, it's a science stopper. Even if you believe in God, even if there is a God, we got to keep him out of science because that stops the process of science. So the claim goes. Historically, it's just the opposite. God was the science starter. And it doesn't matter who you're talking about, whether it was Newton or Kepler or Faraday or, uh, you know, a whole host of others. I got the list here somewhere in my notes, but the wind's blowing. Blaise Pascal, Gregor Mendel, Copernicus, they were all Bible-believing theists. All of these people who were right at the foundation of the major disciplines of science. God wasn't a science stopper, he was the science starter. Along with the conviction that God made a world run by regularities, we call those natural laws, which we could count on by and large, and therefore do, do science as we know it today. Experimental repeatability requires that those laws operate most of the time. And there's no problem with that. However, there are some things that those laws, those regularities, seem completely unable to explain. Those are the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the development of life. And the existence of the soul would also kind of generally fall in there. But that's a little different category because that doesn't require a manipulation of physical things. These others do. You've got the origin of the universe, then you've got life coming from non-life somehow, and then you have life developing into more complexity over time. Um, these things have stubbornly refused to be adequately explained by any appeal to the regularities of science. And in fact, quite the contrary, bear all the fingerprints of design. So notice, by the way, I'm very careful how I'm talking. I am not saying, gee, science hasn't figured it out. Golly whiz, let's just stick G-O-D in the, in, the, in the void. Let's just 
put God in the gap because we don't know what we're talking about, so we're just sticking God in the gap. We are not sticking God in the gap. We are using the evidence to indicate an agent in the process because an agent has the explanatory power to make sense of the physical effect in a way that natural causes cannot. Now, maybe I said that a little fast, but it's going to lead into a different point, a point that I think will make more sense of it. I mentioned that whether there's a conflict between faith and science depends on what you mean by faith. And we learned that the Christian faith properly understood is not present a problem. I said it depends on what faith tradition you mean, and some faith traditions, particularly Eastern religions, do create a problem if you are going to take that worldview seriously for its explanatory power, but not Christianity, because Christianity was the worldview that started science. So the third question then is, it depends on what you mean by science. And this is where all the action really is. Because it turns out the word science has two definitions. Science has two definitions. The first definition you're all familiar with, it's a methodology. It's a system of learning applying certain enterprises or modalities to come to accurate conclusions about the physical universe. Scientific method, if you will. Nothing wrong with that. It works pretty well, it seems to me. Now, intelligent design has been faulted for not being scientific. People say, well, that's not science. Now, of course, if intelligent design was not science in the sense I just described, science as a methodology, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Because if you don't follow the right methodology, you can't be confident of the answers you come up with, okay? But there are all kinds of people committed to intelligent design who are excessively skilled in their fields. And many of them are at the top of their field. There is no fault with their methodology. In fact, this is not what people point out. They don't say, well, you know, you didn't do your experiment just right, or you didn't look closely at the fossils, or X, Y, Z. You've not done the craft correctly. They don't, that's not their complaint. Their complaint is something other. And this something other is the second definition of science. Because science is not just a methodology, it is also an applied metaphysical philosophy. Big words there, I'll explain it. It's an applied metaphysical philosophy. Now, the word metaphysics, the way I'm using it here, don't be scared of it. Once I give you the definition, you could impress your friends with the word. It's just a view of what is real. So a metaphysical view of the world is a view that tells you what is real about the world, what reality is like. So yesterday I talked about the story of reality. I gave you a metaphysical view. It's not a physical view, it is a metaphysical view. It is above the physical world that defines how the physical world works and how the story fits together, okay? Hinduism is another metaphysical view. In their view, only the mind exists and it's God's mind and everything else is an illusion, maya, okay? 
The secularists, the atheists, they have a metaphysical view and it's called materialism. It's meat all the way down. Only, the only thing that exists is matter in motion. In science, that is the view that is forced upon the process. So in science you have a thing is scientific if it follows the right methodology and if it comes to the right kinds of conclusions. And those conclusions are conclusions that comport with a philosophy of metaphysical naturalism. That is, you have to explain everything by natural laws in a closed universe. The minute you bring God into the discussion, no matter whether you think you have good reasons to do so, you have violated the second definition of science, and then they could just simply summarily say, even without looking at your rationale or your evidence, they can simply say, that's not science. So, with regards to intelligent design, largely, the dismissal as not being scientific is not based on the methodology, like you're not doing good science. It's because they're coming to the wrong kinds of conclusions. Now you would think that, well, isn't it a good idea to just follow the evidence where it leads? Yeah, but that's not what's going on here. When you hear the phrase, just listen for it if you're in these discussions, that's not science, when you hear it, think about what has just been said. I promise you, when you hear that's not science, it will not be a, a statement made as a conclusion of bad methodology. They're going to hear God or creation or intelligent design and immediately dismiss everything. Now remember I said there was three areas where it seems that naturalistic explanations are not adequate and there's tremendous evidence for an intelligent agent the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the progression of life. And the progression, because you've got to have, a, even the origin of life, you've got to have a lot of information that's pumped into the genome. And Darwin can't account for that, because it can't create information. Not anything meaningful. Not the kind that we need for the incredible complexity and order that we have in the biological realm. And so, because the evidence looks like there was something designed it, and you go that direction, you're disqualified, okay? Bang, you're out of play. This happens all the time. In fact, in all of academia, this is what's happening. If you're thinking about going into any of these fields as a Christian, you don't have to thump the Bible or quote Genesis. Just believe that God might have been involved in the process. You're not going anywhere. And that's why folks in these disciplines, got to be, they got to go under the radar for a long time and get their credentials and start making a difference before they're able to be heard. Now, I know this sounds a little amazing. Wait, are you telling me they're cheating? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, that's kind of a bold statement. Well, they admit it. I'm going to read something to you that has made its way. I'm just reading one of, of a number of things like this. But this one is probably the most famous. It's a piece that was written by Richard Lewontin. He's a Harvard genetics professor. Harvard is the place where the late paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould served. And he's probably better known than Richard Lewontin, but Richard Lewontin was higher on the academic pecking order than even Stephen Gould. Okay. And he wrote a piece in the New York Review of Books a number of years ago, 
in a commemoration of the passing of Carl Sagan. The piece is called Billions and Billions of Demons. Now, the New York Review of Books is where Cognoscenti talk to each other in our country. This is where the smart guys have their conversations, okay? I'm going to read you a full paragraph from a piece that he wrote, Billions and Billions of Demons, because I don't want you to think that I'm taking anything out of context. Now, I need to explain something, though. There's a f there are two phrases that he uses here that you may not be familiar with. One is a priori. It's a Latin word, a priori. It means prior to the evidence. So if you hold a view a priori, you are holding the view before you've seen any evidence, especially the evidence of empirical analysis. So he'll use that in a moment. He'll say, we have an a priori commitment. That means we have a commitment before we even look at the evidence. Secondly, he's going to use a phrase called just so stories. Now, some of you moms might recognize that line as a title of a Rudyard Kipling book that has its fanciful tales for kids about how the leopard got his spots and the tiger got his stripes and stuff like that. That phrase, just so stories, has crept into the conversation about Darwinism because it seems like when people like Richard Dawkins give an account of how things develop, like flight developed, when you read his accounting, it sounds like he just kind of made this up. It sounds like a just so story that's against common sense. And so that's why many people on the inside have labeled these characterizations about how evolution happened as just so stories. Now, he uses that phrase, too, so I want you to know the definition of it. Now, with that in mind, let me put on my reading glasses and read to you from Richard Lewontin. Quote, our willingness to accept claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We, Luantin and his colleagues, we take the side of science in spite of, and by the way, this is his emphasis, not mine. He italicized these words. In spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. In spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. So that's the philosophy, right? It's not that the methods and the institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. In other words, the methodology doesn't require this philosophy. But on the contrary, we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes. We are just assuming it must be material. To create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Close quote. Richard Lewontin, Billions and Billions of Demons, The New York Review of Books, January 4, 1997. Esteemed Harvard genetics professor Richard Lewontin is admitting to the world that the game is 
rigged. And he is not the only one to do that. This is probably the most famous characterization, partly because it is so bold and so bald an admission of manipulation, and it comes from the highest levels of the academy in the area of Darwinian thinking. But there are many other people who have said the same thing. There are serious problems with the Darwinian project, but the minute noble people come in and look at the evidence that from which they can properly infer design and point that out, they are disqualified because they have the wrong kind of answers. And you will see this pattern given the two definitions of science, one definition of methodology and the second one a definition of philosophy. What happens when you do the methodology right and you come up with answers that are not consistent with the philosophy? What happens when all of the evidence points, for example, to a, a designer outside of the natural realm? I'll tell you the answer. The philosophy trumps the methodology every single time. And they trump it with simple statements like, that's not science, that is religion. And this my friends, is where the real conflict is. It's a conflict of religions in a certain sense. It's not a conflict about the facts. It's not a conflict about blind faith. It's a conflict based on an unwillingness to look at the facts and follow the evidence where it leads. Now I'll say as a postscript, because I'm almost done, is that this is actually changing. And there are strong movements within the academic community away from Darwinism. In fact, the elite academic community has left it in the dust. Now, they haven't left, left materialism in the dust. They're still trying to find a way out of this problem, trying to explain everything without any appeal to intelligence at all. But they're leaving Darwinism behind because they know that the neo-Darwinian synthesis it is a complete failure at doing the job. I don't have time to get into this. People like Stephen Meyer and Doug Axe and Paul Nelson and a whole bunch of other people at the Discovery Institute have done a really good job of kind of demonstrating this to be so. If you want to see an outsider's analysis, there's a philosopher called Thomas Nagel, N-A-G-E-L, and he wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. Now, this isn't for the faint of heart. It's not a very big book, but it's, it's, it, he's a philosopher, okay? And what he says there, the subtitle is why the neo-Darwinian conception of the naturalistic conception of the universe is almost certainly false. Now, Thomas Nagel is an atheist, and he took a lot of heat for writing this book, Mind and Cosmos. He's trying to be fair with the evidence. He doesn't want God exist to exist. He says that. He's trying to find an answer that can sustain his materialistic philosophy, but he knows Darwinism isn't going to do the job. It's failed. And he thinks the ID guys have gotten a bad rap, too. But he's one of quite a number are coming out now, because the old guys are dying away. The people won't change their mind. And there's a whole new breed of people coming up. So these are opportunities for us and for our message. Is there a conflict between science and faith? Depends on what you mean by faith. It depends on what faith tradition you mean and it depends on what you mean by science. If the playing field is level, 
and you understand the Christian view of reality and the Christian view of faith as trust based on knowledge. And a materialistic philosophy is not allowed to intervene. There is no conflict because we are willing to follow the facts where they lead. The question is, are they? That's the question. Thank you. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, please give him a call. Locally in Hawaii, his number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles, additional audio for you to listen to or download, as well as Pat's books. So be sure and share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh, 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 oh,